Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris, and this week we've got something special for you. A collaboration episode with our friend Adam from Red Library. Last week we sat down and recorded ourselves discussing The Dialectic of Defeat by Russell Jacobi, which we think is an excellent book with all kinds of lessons that are valuable for today's Marxists. We recorded using the typical Red Library format, which is a bit different for us, but I think it's good for giving the book the attention it deserves. So if you like today's episode, check out Red Library on your podcatching app. Without further ado, here is The Regrettable Century and Red Library discussing The Dialectic of Defeat. Well, I thought, you know, usually on Red Library, what I think is always good is to sort of set the, set the stage for the book and to talk about the context a little bit. So I have a few notes here about sort of publishing date, like being published in 1980. Um, but I was curious to get y'all's thoughts about this particular period and thinking about, you know, where is Jacoby coming from whenever he's writing this book and what makes his critique and his whole approach so important or, or relevant in the time in which he's writing. I think there's probably a lot of relevance for us like right now in 2019, but I was curious what y'all sort of took from or thought about in terms of where he's coming from and why is this the time to make this argument when he wrote it? Hmm. Well, so Jacoby writing this um, is at the very beginning of the 1980s. So the that's the last decade of official state communism mm-hmm. in, yeah. in Europe, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it is in the middle of economic stagnation that will lead to a crisis that will lead to downhill slide throughout the 1980s. Yeah. So he's seeing he's seeing Marxism through the lens of the the Brezhnev era, you know, mm-hmm. which is the, the the most ossified and stultifying era of official Marxism, and uh, come out on the on the other end of the Vietnam War. The, the, there's a simultaneous triumphalism for having defeated the Americans in the Vietnam War, and the, at the same time, just the worst sort of uh, bureaucratic ossification that has existed up to this mm. point. There's no dynamism left yeah. in official communism at all anymore. But there's still the arrogant, haughty triumphalism of official communism. Yeah, I was thinking about the one of the critical distinctions of, you know, it's something that kind of colors the whole book that is more or less absent, except for in a really weird sort of farcical way, is the notion of other Marxisms defined by a distance from Soviet Marxism. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's still true today, but only in a way where, um, it, in a way that requires a whole other discussion about trying to resurrect the past. But at the time, that is still like literally the case that there is an official Soviet Marxism, mm-hmm. um, which is um, so. This this whole notion of like the that the history is truth itself, like the judgment of history is truth itself. So like you know they won and they're in power, yeah. so that's the right way. Yeah, that's a lot harder of a case to make when you're looking back on the wreckage of that project and the USSR doesn't exist, there are still people that make that argument, but um, it had potency in, in it was taken seriously in political, cultural, philosophical discussion at the time. So, I, you know, it, it was, it was interesting to think about like, what might this have read like 
were what were there still a Soviet Union as opposed to it only being a thing that we fantasize about? Right. Yeah, there's part of me too that that thinks about you know in 1980, right at the sort of tail end of the collapse or the sort of full full degradation of the new communist movement and a lot of those groups and oh, the cadre yeah. models yeah. and how they started to move into electoral politics. But then this is right, you know, right at that moment, right before the sort of revanchist uh, sort of counteroffensive of capital, like with Reagan mm-hmm. and with Thatcher. Mm-hmm. And so it's this really kind of interesting thing for me because I was reading this and saying, okay, I can see Jacoby writing as sort of uh, like writing about Marxism and communism in an era whenever it is obvious that it is declining or it doesn't have the same sort of like vitality Mm -hmm. that it did, but also understanding that even like Soviet state communism and the general like scientific communist sort of ideology that was dominant, even that was still uh, like it had hegemony over all these other type of Marxisms. And so in a way, it's interesting to think about how he's writing sort of this this perspective that's trying to reclaim something from even underneath, you know, the non-dominant discourse of Soviet state socialism at the time. And I mean, to me, it's it's sort of a fascinating take. And you got to wonder, you know, if he pissed a lot of people off whenever he wrote it. I'm sure oh, he did. I'm sure definitely. he had to. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. think that's exactly right. I think he was writing uh, a sort of preemptively answering Mark Fisher's capitalist realism in saying that, you know, um, in a world where there is no alternative, we can look to the the traditions that maybe didn't prevail, the ones that didn't win, mm-hmm. and that have been consigned to the dustbin of history, and we can maybe take uh, uh, the, the possibilities, the kernels, the seeds of possible alternatives from them. Yeah. So um, hold on. Let me just pour one out from my homeboy, Mark Fisher, um, just to make sure it gets credit where it's due. But yeah, I actually think that's a really great point, too, because I wonder if there's a way we can sort of approach this as thinking of Mark Fisher's idea of lost futures, of trying to say these are the possibilities that could have happened. These are the historical trajectories that were there, but never you know, due to power or because of just who lost never had the chance to develop in the way that they could have. So I don't know if that w- might be a way to kind of think about this, but that might be helpful for me, I think. That's sort of the way I, I'm always thinking about these kinds of things anyway. So, yeah, I'm, I'm into it. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad, I mean, we're, <laughs> glad we're on the same page then. So. I w- I've been thinking a lot about the, the all of the various sort of disparate threads that if you tug on them enough, mm-hmm. um, that, that all go back to, you know, what, what Jacobi's calling, you know, the the origins of Western Marxism, because yeah. you can go from, from like Lukács. Really, you can go from 1844 Marx through Lukács um, to like Debord, just as easily as you can to uh, Marcuse or to Mark Fisher. Like there seems to be this sort of right on the outside of the official social democracy and the official communism, pretty much the whole time. There's like wildly varying people with different sort of ideas about political practice, but that are all coming to similar, you know, political conclusions about the world and about about the question of subjectivity. And, uh, you know, it's it's a real tragedy twice over that there never seems to there's never a pole of attraction that attract that brings all of these same people together in the way that like, you know, an international kind of codified a certain kind of Maoism or a certain kind of Trotskyism Mm -hmm. or whatever. Western Marxism seems to have suffered a lot from 
the inability to coordinate, and it's always little kind of groups, little think tanks. But um, on the maybe, other hand, maybe, maybe uh, I think a critical uh, uh, response to that would say that would identify that, that maybe it's the same sort of petty bourgeois uh, individualism that gave rise to the tradition itself. I th- I mean that's the reason why when I was a when I was a a formal Trotskyist, I was so discouraged from reading this stuff. And the reason why I feel so cheated at only just now catching up to it. But um, to to kind of further or to push back against even that, um, you know, it, it does appear that if social democracy and Stalinism have the hegemony in, you know, organized labor, in electoral politics, over whole armies, you know, whole states, it does seem to be that the options are either the direction of Trotskyism, which is the small cadre sect that seeks and never finds a mass audience or the trajectory of western marxism which is a little bit less formal and you know what are the dividends of of the two effects that like i think we are still finding something about about this to to engage with whereas the further out you go from trotsky himself the less there is in trotskyism as such mm-hmm. well i actually want to so. pose a question to y'all based on that I always think it's helpful to talk about the context of the book, but then to talk about, like, why the hell are we spending our time reading this book, and why is this worth the effort to either listen to, you know, the episode that we're doing on it, whenever it comes out, or, or reading it. So, like, I don't know, for, for each of y'all, what, do you, what did you take whenever you read this and to say, wow, this is really why this is important to read now? Well, so anyone who's listened to our podcast is pretty familiar with the milieu from which we came Mm -hmm. and that would have been the third camp Trotskyist left. But um, one of the things that we always criticize it for is the hyperactivity and uh, the idea that if we just fight, then we will win. Mm -hmm. Like there it's all, it's, it's not an inevitability. Mm -hmm. They'll, they'll make sure to say that it's not an inevitability, but then they will act as though it is an inevitability that all we have to do is do these things and follow this formula and we'll get the desired outcome, right? It's it's very much like the uh, it's very linear thinking, right? I have a I have and, a question for you, really quick, on that note, Chris. Have y'all seen the movie Boiler Room? I haven't. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. Okay. No, wait, no, 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 no. I haven't. Never mind. Well, really quick, <laughs> and this might be an interesting thing to connect up with Jackie. There's this great scene where it's a movie about it's like Giovanni Ribisi, and he's this young guy, and he joins this like basically like a completely corrupt. Uh, like Wall Street trading firm that's just basically a bunch of criminals who are just scamming people out of just their life savings. There's this great moment whenever Ben Affleck is sort of like the like the the mid manager who's who's ruthlessly disciplining all the new traders and there's this like huge speech he gives where basically he just keeps saying, you know, the whole way you're going to be successful on Wall Street is you've got to act as if all the time. Like act as if you deserve like the Porsche that you're <laughs> driving. And I fake it till you make it. Yeah. And I mean, I do wonder about how much some of these kind of really uh, like nuanced kind of ideological aspects of capital and the way that we do like buy into this model about success, like fake it till you make it is in some way uh, like part of what we take on even being on the left and don't understand how much that's part of this like general subjectivity under capital. So I don't know, maybe that's a stretch, but you know, that's how I understand shit like this is I think about Ben Affleck and Boiler Room. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, that that's is not the, totally um, wrong, no. <laughs> right. Isn't that basically the contention of everybody that get branded as, you know, ultra left, you know, infantile communists, you know, in the twenties and thirties is that there is a, 
there is a bourgeois, uh, you know, consciousness. Yeah. There's a that there's a hegemonic ideology of advanced capitalism that has to be contended with in a very different way than you know the singularly successful Bolshevik program and model. And you know we we're taught that like oh you know they they won because they were organized in this way, but then we weren't able to produce that success you know in Italy and then even in Germany, but like in France and Spain or the United States or the United Kingdom or li- like yeah, anywhere literally that you anywhere call the else. West. Yeah. Right. And yet, you know, you are able to reproduce it, you know, in all the places that you could call the East, you know, or in some of the places, right? But yeah, it is. I mean, this that's, that's like the primary, um, that's the theoretical foundation of this like sort of distinct Marxism mm-hmm. is this contention that actually there's something fundamental about the way that class consciousness uh, is shaped and warped and and used you know under the conditions of advanced uh, bourgeois domination so i don't think that that's a stretch even i think that would be exactly the point well yeah um, and so w- what i was getting at was that uh the reason i think that this book is worth reading is because it basically forces us to take seriously the failed projects of marxism and to draw from them uh something that we can use to move forward because now looking back at it uh, the official official communism, like state state communism, Stalinism, whatever you want to call it, has also failed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. um, we don't have that as much anymore. We still do have a little bit of it. That sort of you know, well, it was successful, so it's the right way kind of thing to to contend with. But in being involved in the ISO for so many years, we had uh, that sort of that sort of mindset. Well, we're the largest we're the largest radical left-wing organization in the United States. Mm-hmm. So we're obviously doing mm-hmm. something right. Um, which was like, what, like 900 people at its height yeah. or whatever. <laughs> something, something like that. Something yeah. like that. Right. But, um, and so I identify with a lot of the first couple of chapters of this book upon reading it. I was just like, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, uh, but yeah, so I think that that's why this is an important book to read at this point. Yeah. Because it helps us to salvage what we can from all of the traditions of Marxism to try to cobble together yeah. something that is capable of pushing us forward. Absolutely, I, I completely. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I, but I, I think an ad, maybe an added benefit that Jacoby presents with uh, this book is the sort of analytical framework that it's approaching the world in, which is one of uh, a recognition of uh, a left in defeat. Um, Combined with the, the the approach that I think that he inherits from Marcuse of trying to center his analysis and thus like discovery of truths through a phenomenological Marxism, a recapturing of the revolutionary subject, where he is determined to and and he he's he, i think he's the most explicit about this throughout the book in the in the final chapter when and i'm sure we'll get to it more later but where he talks about um the our, you know our analysis of the world can't be a mechanical sort of deterministic a, a sort of flat economism that that re, that like points to the the sort of structural imperatives that give rise to a certain feature of uh, parties or bureaucracies or layers of society or classes or whatever it is that you want to call it uh, or whatever it is that you're looking at you you also you beyond that you have to enmesh yourself in um, the the subjectivity of the actors uh, taking part in this thing that you're analyzing you have to understand 
what it is that they're doing uh, and what it is that they're 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 sort of responding to in the world around them. Um, that a flat economism flattens out a reality of the dynamism of the world that we actually operate in. And if we ever hope to be able to do anything differently, that requires us to be able to uh, take a much more fleshed out picture of the world. Yeah, I would just uh, add a couple of things to that from my own um, sort of interest in this book, too, is that I think talking about Herbert Marcuse in the Frankfurt School and that sort of negative dialectical sort of approach of being anti-positivist and really seeing that as another form of power that operates sort of in tandem with capital and is sort of an engine of capital's, uh, you know, uh, increasing profits and revolutionizing itself and seeing the necessity of, of a dialectical Marxism that is revolutionary and focused on the subjectivity of the revolutionary actors themselves. You know, you have to sort of like push on this and and really hold true to this sort of dialectical anti-positivist approach if you want to avoid some of those same errors. Um, mm -hmm. You know, which is something that I think is, uh, you know, speaking of kind of the wreckage of the 20th century and, you know, the, the regrettableness of that century, um, you know, which. <laughs> but I do think that so, so much of what we do see and why it's so important to, to keep these sort of criticisms and these critiques alive is how much everyone you know, left and right, how seductive that idea of technological progress and scientific advancement was, and how much even today, I think those same ideas are still very uh, seductive to us because they help sort of give us a set of coordinates that are going to help us navigate an increasingly uh, complex and terrifying world where we feel hopeless and we have no idea what to do about it. And I think, you know, at the heart of that, and maybe this is sort of the the old existentialist in me is like, we all need meaning and purpose and we have to mm -hmm. be sort of very critical of how much science and that sort of um, kind of economism provides that for us sort of, uh, you know, prepackaged and we know all the books to read. We can just like read them, regurgitate the arguments and bam, done. You know, mm -hmm. we got it figured out. Like let's, let's, uh, let's make the party. Let's organize the cadre. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's like that didn't work. And it, and it doesn't seem to be working now based on the context right. that we're in. And it's never really worked in the same way here. So when are we going to sort of look forward and not, you know, be sort of fascinated with the destruction of the past and just be kind of um, absorbed in it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, so, you know, working my way back around to answering the question of what as an individual, like what my own personal sort of reasons for wanting to read the book and sort of what to get out of it. I think you just you just touched on it right there. You know, it's in the preface where Jacoby talks about the surveying the vastness of the junkyard and the necessity of sifting through the theoretical rubble um, and sort of performing a, the sort of salvage operation mm -hmm. of, of, of the philosophy of praxis of Marxism. And, you know, like I, you know, that to me is, has been my sort of personal project for, a couple of years now, um, and especially when we see the uh, emergence of something like the DSA, which uh, strikes a lot of people as fresh and new, and certainly like you know, f pretty excited about it for a couple of years, but also smacks of all of the same proof of proof of truth because of you know the size, you know, because there are some people who are elected and whatever. And like, well, we represent, you know, this is the model because it's the biggest and best, whatever. And it's not any different than the sectarian mindset of 
the ISO or whatever. And there's not, there's still not like a, a deep investigation into like method and practice and like vision, you know, and horizons. So to me, like this, this book is, uh, should be, I would treat this book right now the same way I might've treated like Satan revolution or, you know, so, some like sort of primary Leninist text that I might've treated it that way in the 20, uh, when I was 20 is how I would treat this now. Every new Marxist, I would be like, "Hey, let's let's read through Dialectic of Defeat." Yeah, um, and I, 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 I don't even mean that like hyperbolically. Some, I actually, I want to start some reading groups on this. Yeah, it's to me this is like this is like critical, necessary reading, especially, um, you know, I was I was really pleased to see the sort of exposition of you know the difference between positivist science and like, you know. It's not. It's not actually the word science. That uh, what is it? Wissenschaft. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. The right. Hegelian notion of Wissenschaft as science uh, saturated and impregnated with history. Um, I think you can learn a lot more, like, core Marxism in a book like this than you can from the dozens of basics of Marxism one hundred and one type primers that we were all given, you know, in the nineties and two thousands. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel um, cheated. That I didn't get to read this whenever <laughs> I was a baby Marxist. I think you said that earlier, Jason. Yeah. Well, let us let us all hope that by us talking through this book and putting it out there, that some baby Marxist will in fact listen to this episode and be like, "Oh shit, maybe I need to read that before I read some of these other like one hundred and one yeah. primers." And I mean, you know, maybe that'll be one of the positive things that'll come out of this. Yeah. Well, it is written accessibly yeah. enough to where it can it can actually be. It can be dealt with on, uh, you know, at that at that level. I think yeah. it, it assumes a basic working knowledge of Marxism, but only a basic one. Yeah, and I just I got to give a shout out to to Derek Varn for uh, suggesting that I read this the first time I ever talked to him. Yeah, so, I'll uh, yeah. I'll second that shout out because I think I got inspired to read this after hearing y'all talk about it with him. So yeah, I mean we're sitting here because of Derek Varn. So thanks to him. Yeah, everyone go <laughs> listen. Everyone go listen to Symptomatic Redness. Yes, agreed. Um, well, let me, I'm going to pop in with a real quick quote just to pick up on kind of what we were saying here, and then maybe we can start hashing through the, the chapters and the content because I know we got a lot to do. Um, so I, I put down like brief remarks on relevance, and the quote that really stuck to me, um, I'm going to read this. It's, it's a little bit long, but I think it'll sort of encapsulate this. He says, a rough egalitarianism belongs to the 20th century. It has chopped down political hopes and beliefs of every stripe. From liberalism to Marxism, none has survived intact. Talk of the gulag is hardly answered by talk of Auschwitz, nor can analysis of one replace analysis of the other. The wreckage extends in every direction. The vastness of the junkyard encourages, almost compels, retreat and resignation. Yet, as Herbert Marcuse once remarked, there was no God that failed, only men and women. And to me, oh, so that whenever good. I read that, uh, I'm like, well, that's obviously why I'm reading this book. Yeah, I know, it's ridiculously good, so... Yeah, I yeah. have that. I have that same quote starting my notes. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm, you know, I feel like it's important that I I keep giving credit where it's due. I mean, part of why I fell in love with y'all's show is because I feel like y'all encapsulate that sort of mentality and trying to move forward. And I, you know, it was something that I think we were trying to do on our show. So um, I don't know. We're all of of the same spirit here. So I'm glad that this is the book that we found. Yeah. Bunch of navel gazing Western Marxists. Hell yeah, proudly, proudly gazing at my navel <laughs> Actually, all day long. <laughs> Sorry, even with the video, I'm just assuming that you all are just generated by an AI somewhere. So it's fine. This is really the same to me. Yeah, we're, we're all Russian bots, <laughs> aren't we all? On some in some way or another, we're all Russian bots. Yeah. 
I'm, a, I'm an Russian aspiring Russian bot. <laughs> Well, so what do you all want to pick out of the introduction here? I know we have a lot. I think we've touched on sort of the the mistaking um, success for like theoretical appropriateness or or sort of contextual appropriateness. I feel like that's sort of a big uh, focus of the first section of the book. Yeah, I, I think that the the introduction might have been like the best part of the book. Yeah, I would agree with uh, that. Yeah, it really. Yeah, I mean the the introduction. I think it it has a lot of overlap with uh, how we started out this this discussion in approaching sort of like yeah. the project as a whole because I think that's how he he wrote the introduction is to be this this sort of this like meta uh, statement about what he's about to commence doing in the rest of the book, um, sort of laying out his framework, talking about why it is he undertook this project, why it matters uh, from his perspective, and uh, you know. Uh, what what he's trying to accomplish, um, so there there I think there is a bit of a overlap with what we were the conversation we were just having, but yeah no I agree because of that it it really does just encapsulate the the spirit of the whole thing uh, I think it's really yeah it's really great there was there was one point that I I thought was worth talking about and that was the idea that we cannot just disavow disavow the um, the worst excesses of Stalinism as not being Marxist because it's it's part of our history Mm -hmm. and uh, we have to own it and we have to realize where it is that the project went wrong in order to not replicate those mistakes in the future Um, and there's this quote that says uh, today no study can avert its eyes from the dark shadows that fall upon Marxism if civilization can be judged by its prisons refugees and victims Marxism cannot claim exemption. The darkness is due to not simply to its opponents, but to its proponents. Yeah. So um, I think it's important that we just not explain away by saying, oh, that wasn't real. That wasn't real communism. Oh, that wasn't real socialism. You know, it, it may not have been the version of socialism that we think, you know, that we would like to see co- like come to fruition one day. But it's something that we have to deal with because wherever, wherever you see the project having gone wrong, it started off in the same place. I also think that there's an importance to that because, at least in my mind, there are going to be opportunities if we're not just sort of, you know, inwardly facing with our own groups and our own small little cliques that we might have to talk with someone who is genuinely interested in Marxism and socialism and then will inevitably say, well, what about Stalin? What about Mao? And and how do you talk about that? Um, I don't know if you all have like had that experience, you know, often or, or lately, but it does seem to me something that is important to think about how do you answer that in a genuine way that doesn't, yeah, just dismiss those as, as, you know, the same thing of like, well, that's not real capitalism, that's crony capitalism, and we have yeah. our own version of that. Um, but yeah, right. I don't know. I mean, it seems like that is important to do as just a practical thing of talking to just regular ass people who might be interested in being anti-capitalist in some shape or form. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have found that having pursued two different approaches to that mm-hmm. question. Um, I have found the sort of hand, the waving away of the like metaphysically bad fake socialism as being pretty uh, unconvincing to yeah. people. Um, <laughs> hmm, interesting. Where, you know, it, it, whereas like, you know, a, a nuanced, complex conversation about how 
you know, there's there are elements of our history as a republic, you know, as a country that are um, things worth sort of defending and there are elements of it which are things uh, worth, you know, scathing, ruthless indictment. And that like, if you were to sort of look back from the vantage point of like the Trail of Tears to, you know, could you, you could say, hey, maybe this whole like republicanism thing was a mistake and we should avoid it and we should, you know, the the British monarchy and its colonies, they didn't they didn't launch genocidal war against the indigenous people of the continent. So you know, maybe monarchy is better. And that's foolish, right? And nobody, that, that rings true with literally nobody. So when I think when you start to talk about things, A, honestly, and B, in terms of, of like points of reference that actually make sense to people, um, you get a much better result of like, you know, actually contending with, you know, what has happened and what might happen on the basis of that contention. Nobody is ever convinced by, oh, yeah, that's not what we mean. We mean this other better one. It's like, well, yeah, duh, literally, we all mean a better version of what, you know, whatever it is that you've encountered already. We all want a better version. So it doesn't, it doesn't move anybody. It, it, it just, it, it makes you sound like a fucking crank. Not all of us. I mean, the Democrats don't want to better anything. You know? <laughs> oh, I'm, just talking, I'm, I'm talking about real people. Real actual human beings, not fucking yeah. like automatons <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. No, I, you know, this actually reminds me of something that I know we both have been sort of kind of uh, orbiting on both of our shows, which is left-wing melancholia and the, the need to integrate the failures, the tragedies into our own way of understanding these things to move forward. Part of me has to wonder if what is so challenging about this is that whenever you do have to talk about it, it's it's a much less psychologically taxing and intellectually taxing thing to just say, well, that's not what we mean, as opposed to saying, yeah, holy shit, I have to like really understand this history. I have to somehow integrate this into like my values, my basic orientation of the world to be able to even make sense of it and then have that honest answer that is potentially going to move someone and not just, you know, be so easily dismissed. Um, and maybe, you know, that's part of the task, too, is it's very hard to. There's a lot of maybe um, like uh, like contradiction that we hold if we're saying, oh, OK, well, I think that there's this idealized form of socialism or communism. And if someone brings up Stalin or, you know, barrier or whatever it is, I can just very easily push that off and deny that and, and sort of preserve my own kind of stability of my own psyche. You know, I don't have to work to integrate those two things and potentially change my own perspective. Right. And it I would say like it's it should strike us all as fundamentally undialectical in its in its reasoning because you know the the idea that like um in the struggle against capital that you know that socialism hasn't sort of uh in, incorporated sort of you know elements of the thesis in the synthesis mm-hmm. right that that there isn't a negation of the of that negation that is inherent in the experience of trying to build the socialist project in the form of like states or whatever um it it renders our whole approach to to politics and and thus to like to practice in the real world as being really no different than the sort of positivist you know linear scientific way of, uh that we're that we're trying to contend with you know in a more abstract philosophical way uh and it doesn't it doesn't prepare us for the real challenges of you know becoming bits of of what it is that we don't want to be of like you know carrying the muck of ages uh kind of on us um it it basically it it 
it takes us away from a conversation about subjectivity mm-hmm. and returns us to a conversation about objectivity, like the conditions weren't prepared, whatever, um, as opposed to like real decisions by real human beings that have like world historic consequences that can go this way or that way. Um, you know, it takes away your ability to, uh, to, to really study, like just taking the Soviet example, um, you know, you, you can't understand like the Khrushchev thaw and the emergence of this kind of like reappreciation of, you know, Lenin or like the way in which there's in the perestroika period that people, re- you know, they, they're sort of debating the NEP or whatever. Um, like all of that, it, you can't really deal with it properly if you don't think about, you know, history and in, in terms of processes and ruptures and leaps forward and backward. It's just it's too easy to wave it away, but it's also it 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 literally trains us to to do our jobs the wrong way. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think that it uh, a major project that he, he's Jacoby is trying to sort of emphasize with this uh, is exactly that the the idea that subjectivity reinserting subjectivity in our analysis of uh, our our own conditions and historical conditions is precisely to throw open the door to possibility again i i think that there's a sort of analog maybe that you can make with the the free will versus determinism sort of debate where uh you know there's a a certain uh perspective that you can take on determinism uh, to say that everything is mechanically determined and i have no free will you can then respond to that by 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 you know like uh, resigning yourself to the world that you live in and refusing to try to change things anymore uh, because everything simply is and there's nothing that you can do to to change it. Your your will doesn't have any impact on the world, but it's a, that that creates itself it, it uh, puts it creates a self fulfilling prophecy, right? It says. Uh, that I am not going to change anything because I don't believe that I can change anything. And I think that reinserting the subjectivity reopens the door to possible alternatives. I think that's part of what Jacoby is getting at, which, um, if I can quote him uh, here at the very end of the introduction, he says, uh, the you know Marxism, Marxism hardly needs the, uh, the lesson that objectivity is its watchword and opium, uh, yet the compulsive objectivity of orthodox Marxism is more compulsive than objective. Uh, to prize the formal logic of argument over the illogic of reality sacrifices thought to mechanics. And uh, so I, I think part of what he's trying to get at here is to say that by refusing to engage with uh, the failures of the past as the, the, the consequences of choices that human beings made, and instead reducing them to, you know, hand waved, like, oh, that was the product of the bureaucratization of the party. And, you know, we'll counteract that with this other mechanism. It, 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 uh, frees or, or it lifts the burden off of our shoulders of having to do the work of confronting that, that horrific reality and, uh, and, and affirmatively choosing a different path forward. And I, I would say too, on that note, that maybe for me, whenever I think about what is the core, the core idea or the core argument being made, I think that it's part of this way that whenever we look at the past, we have confused or very easily confused some sort of judgment about truth with a capital T. We've, we've made a, an, a sort of equivalency between that and success. 
like what was successful and what wasn't successful. And so Mm -hmm. This idea that whenever we look back and we say, okay, like the Bolsheviks over the Mensheviks, Stalin over Trotsky, so on and so on, that we see these sort of struggles over power that are so complicated and so dependent on structural factors, but also subjective factors, cultural factors, you need to each context, we can then look at that and say, well, whoever won out, that's what we're going to say is true in the sort of objective scientific determination about history and historical development. And I think that he, he has this quote here. Again, it's a little bit uh, long. If you all don't mind, I'm going to read it because I think it sort of encapsulates this pretty well. Go for it. But he says, The, the yeah, success of the Russian Revolution and later the Chinese Revolution dazzled generations of Marxists and non-Marxists. Conversely, the failure of other Marxisms, notab notably a distinct European Marxism, confirmed their inadequacy. Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and others attracted attention because of their successes. Attention could not be cleaved from imitation, however— Hence, the model and theories of the Russian Revolution were not only exported, but also enthusiastically imported by countless Marxists. That the subverters respected the judgment of reality is only proper. That they worshipped it, crippled Marxism by substituting mimicry for thought. And to me, that idea of substituting mimicry for thought is something that, I'm curious if you all would agree with this, that is still a very, very strong tendency um, in a lot of the left now that keeps us sort of anchored to the past as we confuse those two to this day all the time. That's the uh, the slogan of the American left. <laughs> Substituting mimicry for thought. Thumbs up. Smile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what is interesting to me is that it never really occurred to me that the mechanistic sort of like triumphalist thought that drives the official communism, like the Stalinist's, forward all throughout uh, the, the history of the Soviet Union sort of disappears and reverses really quickly whenever you've got to explain the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Was it a historic inevitability? No, no, it's due to factors such as Khrushchev being a, a capitalist rotor who, you know, is a revisionist and betrayed Stalin after his death, or to Gorbachev who, you know... Just loved pizza. <laughs> This mother motherfucker just wanted pizza. <laughs> yeah. It gets even harder when you consider that the capitalist rotors did not dissolve the People's Republic of China. And, you know. Mm. Yeah. Why like is that? Wait, does the capitalist road lead to the destruction of the society or does it not? I mean, I don't know. That's that's barely a, that's barely a real useful discourse anyways i think well the same people um, that would say that is true about the ussr will defend china right exactly yeah it's almost like they're just very incoherent and haven't really thought through a lot of these things mm -hmm. it's called casuistry is what it is oh fair enough fair enough all right yeah. i'll put that in the show notes for the red library episode so everyone knows how to define that <laughs> <laughs> um one thing i want to say about this first chapter um that i just really appreciated was the um, ruthless critique, I guess, or, you know, this pummeling, actually, of Althusserian thinking and the sort of the attempt to, to draw a really wide sort of gulf between what's being called Western Marxism and, you know, Althusser, who's typically lumped in with Western Marxism. Uh, Jacoby doesn't seem to appreciate Althusser um, at all. Yeah. Nope. No, he's, he's not a fan. He is not a fan. <laughs> yeah. Well, that maybe um, really quick yeah. to you, Jason, just since you brought that up, it might be a good time to sort of 
like talk about the two general branches of Marxism um, that Jacobi's going to explore. So I guess on one side we would have Western Marxism, which would uh, kind of be traced to a focus on subjectivity. Um, I guess uh, thinking about the relationship to Hegel and earlier an earlier version of Hegel in his writings that focuses on revolutionary subjectivity and consciousness and the development of that throughout history and through struggle with opposing forces versus, I guess, Soviet Eastern style, like objective scientific socialism that I would definitely include Althusser in um, as opposed to a Western Marxist kind of school, which is saying it is about science and objective truth and the sort of unfolding of history, which is going to lead to truth. Uh, And so I kind of thought of it in terms of like really putting those two different camps in opposition to each other and connecting up a certain reading of Hegel with a certain branch of Marxist development. Does that, does that make sense to y'all or is that how you read it? Yeah, okay. totally. Um, yeah, for sure. Well, it was, I mean, what's, it's cool because right, like there's this notion of Hegelian Marxism as being, you know, or Western Marxism as being somewhat equivalent, but then even the conformist Marxism is the other term he uses mm-hmm. is also Hegelian, yeah. right? It's the uh, the other side of he- Hegel. So that you see he doesn't, you know, Jacobi does not take this sort of lazier um, uh, real tradition kind of approach of being like, oh, these were the people who appre- who understood Hegel and these are the people who didn't understand Hegel. It's actually, it's the same as the, the young Hegelian and old Hegelian divide, which makes, you know, Marx and Engels being the young young Hegelians and whatever, that there's different strands of Hegelianism in every every branch, every division, and every little conflict and competition of ideas uh, all throughout, from Hegel himself all the way up to the pres- the moment that Jacobi's writing. Um, everyone can lay claim to Hegel, and they're all somewhat correct. But also, there's there's a there's a greater emphasis on Hegelian logic in the Western Marxist sort of tradition yeah and it's it's really interesting to connect up these two different branches to different readings of hegel or different periods of hegel's writings because of how in insanely complicated and completely obtuse like hegel is i mean there's this quote that uh on his deathbed he said only one person who has read me has understood me and even he misunderstood me so you know it's like it's interesting to think about this connection of how different schools are interpreting different periods of Hegel and just, you know, the, the complete, uh, utter like gaps between the two and what that could lead to. Um, so to me, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, yet again, I don't know how many, how many Marxists I encounter these days who also are reading Hegel and trying to connect up the the tradition, you know, between those two. Uh, probably like six. Yeah, I'm I'm probably one of them if I'm gonna be honest. And I'm like completely <laughs> fucking insufferable about it. So. Well, you know, like I re- so I recall being like uh, 19, 20 years old and talking to older comrades who introduced me to the notion in order to to dismiss it that there is uh, some kind of divergence between uh, Marx and Engels' approach to science. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, that's all nonsense. That's just like, you know, grad school metaphysics or whatever. Um, but like having actually investigated that that notion kind of in later in life, it does appear to be the the real the real like sort of philosophical uh, point of rupture actually does seem to be between Marx and Engels themselves. Right. Like Marx as a you know, as a doctor of philosophy um, 
and Engels as like a highly educated, well-placed, scientific-thinking bourgeois of his era. And they're both, you know, they're, they're both on our side, right? They're both on the side of the uh, of the movement of the class. But they actually they they have different approaches, and it, you can you can see it in their writing, and you can see it in the influence they have. And it's you know, it's it's significant, I think, that the the Marxism of Plekhanov and Kautsky, um, and it, you know that it that it comes directly from relationships forged with, uh, you know, he, uh, Engels as elder statesman, you know, in the forming of the Second International, and then people like Lukács are going back to Marx's 1844 manuscripts, and they're like, oh, hey, here's some like dramatically different kind of thinking. So that you have to contend with, is there an old Marx and a young Marx, or is it a Marx versus Engels, or, you know, that there, that there is a conflict inherent in Marxism from the very beginning. Yeah, I think two other points that are really key about that as well is, even this idea that there's what the so-called epistemological break between young Marx and old Marx is sort of an Althusserian idea that Jacobi ruthlessly criticizes and basically says, he says yeah. this once and then immediately was like, yeah, I was just completely wrong about that. Um, so it's interesting to think about how even this idea that there were these two different strands or like two different aspects of Marx himself is is part of this sort of Soviet scientific Marxist kind of reading of him um, by, you know, Althusser of all people. Uh, but this this actually brings up a question I wanted to ask you all about this specifically. So, I mean, if, if the general idea is that, OK, there's there's Marx and Engels working together after Marx dies. Engels becomes sort of the interpreter, the figurehead of the the sort of lineage of Marx and translates that to Kautsky, to the SPD, like to the Western European Marxist tradition. Um, I know that there is actually some stuff that I've seen. Uh, uh, I think Lexi from Swampside has been posting about how there maybe isn't as much of a division as we might think that I think mm. Marx was involved with editing like a chapter of Anti During and you know, maybe held more of that like scientific sort of Marxist worldview than we might we might think, or maybe as Jacobi sort of proposes. I don't know if you all have encountered this, but I was curious if you had any thoughts on that, if you had, and just sort of like what you make of that, of maybe even like Jacobi's reading of this could be uh, sort of like drawing a bigger distinction than there than there may have been. It strikes me that the that. That sort of points to the two different kinds of traditions that there are. Jacoby sort of leans uh, in the tradition of trying to sort of uh, put an a wedge, an intellectual wedge between Engels and Marx. And I think folks uh, like uh, our good comrades at the Swampside Chats maybe lean more on the side of tr trying to remove that wedge and said that they, mm -hmm. you know, that they were engaged in a similar or the same on disrupted intellectual project uh and and i think that those are the two camps that kind of that jacoby is, is sort of outlining throughout his text where he's saying one is the the historical hegelianism and uh the second one of those two uh is the scientific hegelianism i would say i'm not i'm not scholar enough to have a very perfectly convinced answer <clears throat> but you know um if you read capital you see you know to to you to continue to use the terms both marxes on display yes you yes. know mm -hmm. in in the in the mature later marx right and like you said um the in herr during's revolution of science um or anti-during i guess uh the yeah it's it's you know marx's th this isn't something that engels pursues kind of 
on his own, like without constant collaboration with his, uh, you know, his intellectual partner. superior. <laughs> well, yeah, sure, but with also with his partner, right? Like, it's it's kind of like how um, it might maybe it would come as a surprise to some people, but like, uh, I don't necessarily agree with Kevin about everything, or Chris, or Jenny about everything. Mm -hmm. um, and completely in isolation, we might Fuck produce you, very... Man. Yeah, man. I mean, Jason, are you trying to split the party right now? Is that what's going on? <laughs> the, the title of this is going to be The Veritable Split in the Hegel Book. But the point is about, I think, that, um, you know, the thing about interpretation is that if you want to lay claim to the legacy of Marx and Engels for your interpretation, you can, whichever interpretation you've got. But I think that is actually to miss the point of the sort of the philosophy of praxis that makes up Marxist thinking, right? And and it's it does a disservice to everybody to try to be oh uh, no the the real Marxism is the one of Marx, which is this way, as opposed to the the sort of dumbed down scientistic Marxism of Engels. I think Engels tends more in that direction, but Marx did too. And I don't think that I don't think that it's you know it's not so clean and simple as the one versus yeah, the other. Right. Well, I mean, if it was, they wouldn't have constantly worked together and everything while they were alive. Right. So when we read Marx, we're not like, you know, Baptists reading the red words in the Bible and taking our cues from a literal interpretation of that. Like, what if we disagree with Marx? Is, is that okay? You know, of course it is. Obviously yeah, not. Obviously. <laughs> no, well, that, that's yeah. the obvious answer. <laughs> What if we think Marx was wrong about something, you know? I mean, there are obvious fundamental things that you cannot disagree with and still consider yourself a Marxist. But, you know, there's room for interpretation. Well, on that note, actually, there are a couple of points um, from Chapter 1 I think are pretty pretty relevant for this. I mean, I think that part of what Jacoby's critiquing here is the, the way that you can understand the relationship between historical facts and the context in Marxist theory and understand that there's a tension there. And it's, and it's also a question about interpretation. And I have this point where he says that he critiques the use of these facts as some objective proving of Marxist theory in the scientific sense. So this way that you can focus on certain particular facts about this incredibly complex historical tradition and use those facts to prove your theory or your reading of it is correct. And, and we are. We're dealing with battling interpretations all the time. And this question mm -hmm. of interpretation is one I think uh, is – I wasn't even going to say like not thought about like or not talked about. It's like not even considered a question that there are, there are issues of interpretation here in terms of leftist politics and how we make sense of all these things now. Um, but in terms of like reading Marx and thinking of it as almost, you know, you're, you're a Baptist interpreting the Bible in a particular way uh, – I don't know if you all remember this, but Jacoby has this line where he basically talks about Marxism being used as apologetics for re revolutionary movements and how we can sort of extol past victories as reasons to continue using orthodox Marxist approaches to socialist revolution until they fail and something else must be adopted, which maybe goes back to that, you know, Marxism is great until the Soviet Union collapses and then we just sort of brush that off to the side and, and focus on something else. Well, it's, yeah, it's like whenever people go from being supporters of the Soviet state until Khrushchev and then supporters of the Chinese state until uh, Deng Xiaoping. And then they, you know, they keep going down the line until there's only uh, <laughs> Enver Hoxha's <laughs> Albania is like the last holdout and the only true uh, sort of repository of the immortal science of Marxist Leninist 
uh, dialectical materialism. I'm, I'm broadcasting from and my bunker just, right now. I don't know about y'all. <laughs> I mean, we're we're all. Let's, <laughs> let's just get this out in the open. We're all secretly Hojaists, right? Yes, but in any gathering of Hojaists, um, it's it goes it's without fail that at least one quarter of them are actually revisionists. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. So it's Kevin. <laughs> it's Kevin. <laughs> hey, wait a second. Yeah, you know, I jumped in there with like some pithy comment about Hojaism, and I kind of forgot the point. <laughs> that's 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 why I, that's what I'm for is to derail Jason with a stupid joke. <laughs> I love it. This, these power struggles that we're involved in right now are just really beautiful. I'm I'm very glad we're doing this. <laughs> well, according according to Althusser, this is this is class. Oh struggle. yeah, you're right. Is this you know the writing of papers and whatever. Well, maybe I don't know if this will this will put a fine point on what you were talking about, Jason. But would y'all mind if I grab another quote for us here? Please. Go so for it. Uh, this is about Marxism as apologetics for revolutionary, revolutionary movements. Uh, Jacoby says, "quote It is no sin to be wrong, but it is no virtue to be wrong consistently." This is the question that Orthodox Marxism provokes. History is assembled from a series of discrete mechanisms. If one breaks down, another is always available. This approach is immunized against criticism by continual shifting of its object. Last year, Maoism. This year, the prison movement. Next year, the working class. So for me, that, that kind of maybe distilled a lot of what we're talking about down into, you know, just a, a horribly damning uh, single paragraph. Oh, yeah. Is that the part where he, he, Jacoby points out Bettelheim discovering, you know, in 1977 that actually the Cultural Revolution was very obviously flawed as far back as 1967. Yeah, that's it, yeah. You're like, or like, you know, uh, one of my favorite examples of this, even though I didn't know until I read this book that it was this example of this phenomenon, but it's when Eric Hobsbawm says in 1991 that like, oh, well, it's obvious that the, you know, the Warsaw Pact countries weren't worker states and nobody really thought they were. It's like, well, you fucking did. (laughs) (laughs) And you told us and you wrote it down and there was a whole party based around the notion um uh you know it's a it's sort of summed up in in Hobsbawm saying like oh the Trotskyists were right all along but it's not actually that 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 kind of like misses the point he doesn't say the Trotskyists were right he just says oh yeah this this was an obvious farce and we all yeah. knew it it's this kind of like re recasting um there's, there's definitely still a truth and no need for self-investigation and certainly no need for examining processes well, to me, it just comes back to that quote from the beginning. You know, it's like, like Marcuse said, it's not, the, you know, the gods that have failed. It's men and women and how fallible, like, all of these people are and, and we are as well. And, yeah, it's hard to contend with that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that it's dizzying. Like, no one ever bothered writing anything I said down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, ten God. Ten years ago, I... <laughs> back when I was the hackiest of Trotskyist hacks. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, like... If I was to like search for you know things I might have written for socialist worker and compared it to what I think about those same things now, I might find myself to be not like ashamed because uh you know i I'm gonna try to not be like Bettelheim and Althusser, but definitely like happy to have moved on from you know narrow confines and also pretty grateful that nothing I ever do will be so important that it will be in some sort of collected work. Yeah, that is a, a cold comfort in itself. I'm, I'm I'm embarrassed just seeing like Facebook posts from like seven years ago that pop up in your, you know, in your on your screen that say like, yeah, remember when you posted this eight years ago? And it's just like, oh man, that was embarrassing. Remember when you spent like 
like a whole week arguing with some other Trotskyists from some other sect yeah. on Facebook, and there are 145 back and forth comments. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? Yeah, after your death, it's going to be published as correspondence. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just about to say that you know all that's going to be in your collected writings, and it'll be published by you know like Princeton or something like that. Yeah. At some point. <laughs> there won't be a Princeton by the time I die. <laughs> what one yeah, can hope? Lock, yeah. One can hope. Well, it depends on why it's not there anymore. Could it, it could be because the human race is all but extinct. Yeah. And everyone that's left is like living in the Mad Max desert wastelands, killing each other for gasoline. Hell yeah. That, oh, sorry. I thought that was obvious. Bar- <laughs> that's what I meant. Barbarism or socialism? This is why I was excited to do this episode, because I'm like, it's only a matter of time before it's just like, all right, y'all, let's get this bread and start talking about revolutionary pessimism and the Mad Max hellscape that we're all <laughs> destined for. So. <laughs> It, well, it, we it, held off as long as we could. Actually, I'm yeah, proud of this. It, that was like an hour. It took us an hour to get there. Let's <laughs> go. Um, so I actually thought maybe we could come back and talk about this uh, definition of science and how these two different schools uh, draw from Hegel different ways to think about science. So... Um, I think, Chris, did you mention uh, Wissenschaft earlier in the episode? That was Jason, but one of us okay, did, yes. Yeah. So I thought it might be helpful to talk about that because I'm trying to do a better job of defining terms for, let's say, someone who might have never encountered any of this stuff um, whenever they listen to, to an episode. But I was thinking that this this notion that Wissenschaft for Marx is not defined as sort of like the scientific method per se, the way that we might think of it now, but that Wissenschaft actually meant something that Jacobi calls, quote, knowledge of the social movement made by the peoples themselves. And he contrasts that with any sort of utopian socialist delusion or illusion about how we can know exactly what the revolutionary utopia is going to look like and how many buttons we're going to have on our jackets and all this other stuff. So I thought to me that was actually a pretty helpful uh, way to distinguish those two and to think that, oh, yeah, the way that I think about science now in, you know, the capitalist technological hellscape that we're in isn't necessarily the same thing that Marx meant whenever he talked about scientific socialism per se. Yeah. Um, when I was reading that, that bit in this, in this chapter, I was reminded of some of the conversations that we've had about, um, you know, the Gothic strain or like the warm current and Marxism uh, and like Marxist romanticism and the sort of the clash between, you know, utopianism and, and modernism and it always it, it it has struck me as being somewhat inadequate to only be able to think of the world in terms of like uh, science and rationality on the one hand um, or basically emotiveness and, you know, whatever superstition on the other. Like uh, that, that that is a bourgeois mode mm-hmm. of thought to, to, to present the world in terms of these two uh, the this sort of bipolar conception of the world. Uh, so this this notion of Wissenschaft as a it's not you know it's not a it's not a third uh, a third camp between the two but it is a more um, it is a more complex uh, way of thinking about what we might otherwise only be able to understand as as partial as either being science or or whatever romanticism and emotiveness um, I think it's it's a very useful term to kind of mull over. And it's it's too bad that we don't have a direct translation in English, which is why we just keep saying scientific. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Even though they don't technically mean the same thing, even though they do approximate a similar uh, desired outcome. And I think on that note, too, the idea that the way we think about science is this sort of bourgeois concept. I mean, I think that a really important criticism that Jacobi is, is offering here is that, you know, Marxism increasingly came to adopt these sort of bourgeois ideas of success and progress and, and science in the way that is not Wissenschaft, but something else. I don't know if you all remember this, but he has this line about Max Weber, the you know really famous sociologist going to the SPD meeting and basically just said he goes there to look at this revolutionary Marxist organization and just walks out and says they scare no one precisely because they had sort of <laughs> adopted these bourgeois sorts of concepts and constructs. And he saw that, that these things fundamentally aren't challenging the basic assumptions and, and, and kind of foundational uh, ideological components of what bourgeois Western European society is, is running on right now. It's a it's a similar feeling that many people have had walking into DSA ooh, meetings. Ooh, burn, burn. <laughs> <laughs> which spicy, is just spicy, spicy takes today. <laughs> which is just to say that, like you know, yes, just like how it was good that there was a social democratic movement in Germany um, that brought together workers and intellectuals in competition with the state, but it was also increasingly flawed by by virtue of absorbing, you know, that which it was contending with, which is you know that's that's a more complex and dialectical way of thinking about things because it is all about these sort of intentionalities and these decisions we make. Um, it was good that it existed, but that criticism is legitimate. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing of, of the DSA right now. You know, um, I don't want I don't want it to be I don't want there to be a red guard. <laughs> but <laughs> it's like anytime we've we've gotten criticism about our show, um, it it comes it comes from all sides. It's like oh they're they're reformists. Uh, oh, they're just a bunch of Trotskyists. Oh, they're just a bunch of tankies, you know? And it's like, um, yes, but also no, because <laughs> it's definitely more complicated and interesting than that. Yeah. yeah. You, you got to love when you can be everything to everybody. That's That's got to be a really great feeling for y'all. Well, it's kind of like Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> only one... Only one listener understood the regrettable century, and even they did not understand you. <laughs> We're pretty much just like the podcast version of Hegel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the thing about history repeating itself is we're in the farce phase. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oof, yeah. We are certainly farcical. We're the farcical Hegels. Farcical Hegels. That's our punk band, too. I was going to say a polka so, band, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a polka sort of punk. A, yeah. Yeah. In the interest of trying to do this down, <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. You know, the the stuff about Lenin and Taylorism, um, you know, and the the I re- I recall having this cr- criticism, um, or rather, this kind of c- comradely critique uh, levied at me by an anarchist friend many years ago, where. He, he was talking about, you know, it's like, well, Lenin talked about, you know, the need to build up a sort of state capitalism and copy Taylorist models. And don't you see that as like a kind of a fundamental flaw in the DNA of Leninism? And um, at the time, my answer was no. And now maybe my answer is more like kind of, um, you know, and without without trying to have like a tangential conversation about the development of capitalism in Russia and the particular needs of the productive forces, whatever. I think it's very obvious and it's, it's really well put in, in this text that um, the, the, you know, this, the critique of bourgeois society gradually losing, uh, losing out to the adoption of bourgeois kind of rationality and, and if 
desire for efficiency. Like, that's true. Like, that's very obvious, um, especially once it comes to Stalin saying, essentially, the project is, you know, the sort of basically the Slavic revolutionary spirit merged with American efficiency in production. Like, that's not something that should inspire anybody now. And it doesn't. <laughs> I was waiting to, I, was, I just wanted to give space in case someone was just like, well, I don't know. I think that sounds pretty good. <laughs> it's like, this sounds badass. As much as I love Slavic things. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was me editorializing. I think he actually says Russian, but I think that's just because for Stalin, those were the same thing. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe this is sort of a, a way we can kind of build on this too, that I, I think Jacoby has this pretty interesting, and I'm not even really sure what I think about it, idea of, I guess if you want to talk about, let's say the Frankfurt School and this Western Marxist strain talking about subjectivity and culture and media and psychology and how, I guess in this more Soviet scientific, you know, base superstructure kind of brute vulgar Marxist model, these things would be seen as secondary features of capital. And he has this idea where he says that that actually conservative thinkers tended to be much more sharp and sort of prescient in their criticisms of the secondary features of capital, like mass media and psychology and such, than most. Oh, yeah, that was super interesting. Yeah. So I was curious what y'all thought about that, because um, I think he talks about Oswald Spengler, um, you know, the uh, the brilliant crypto fascist. Uh, so I proto fascist, yeah, yeah proto fascist. Fair enough. So I was curious what y'all thought about that. If you thought there was, um, I don't know, just something intriguing or, or sort of spot on about that. I thought it was spot on because you don't see critiques of the secondary aspects of capitalism like those until you get to people like Walter Benjamin. Mm-hmm. I had been, you know, I, I had never really read anything like that until actually you you get it from sort of the third worldist camp as well you know like way later down the road lamenting the destruction of native habitats for uh industrial progress and things like that that usually comes from the the gk chestertons and you know people like that but uh yeah, it, it, I thought it was super interesting and it, it really made me wonder why there that didn't exist in you know, the whole first half of the history of Marxism. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the truth is that it did, and we're just not as aware, or we just weren't as aware for most of our lives, oh, yeah, like, you know. But I was like, for um, sure. Like, I'm not super familiar with William Morris. Um, I am vaguely familiar with William Morris. Um, but this book made me want to, to or Ernst Bloch. Um, right. We, you need, know, we need to uh, read more Ernst Bloch. Yeah. So even whenever I encountered, you know, the Guy Debord, the first time I encountered the, the, the sort of critique of spectacle, because my sort of political background was so, so much just kind of aping a particular interpretation of probably what Lenin wanted, it struck me as way out of left field. And it was a lot more difficult to grapple with before I then, you know, kind of circled back to it after years of having encountered, um, having encountered Lukács and having read something about surrealism and um, sort of approaching Sartre with sort of adult, um, sort of like just with, with a more complex uh, way of thinking about the world. And then all of a sudden these threads, they all become a lot more obvious. And it turns out that this, this trajectory has, has been there. And we, I think that, you know, at least just speaking personally, I was just unaware of it. 
Like it doesn't come out of nowhere, but it is that conservative voices tend to be the more prominent ones. Um, you know, Jacobi talks about the the sort of Soviet ideologues regularly uh, being able to sort of castigate this kind of unorthodox Marxism as being conservative and utopian yeah. and romantic in, in a way that all of those are meant to be sort of equally um, negative terms, you know, utopian and romantic. Yeah, he calls them dirty words. Yeah. Yeah. But like this, this, uh, this Spengler uh, passage is, is very quotable. And it's, to me, like conservative or not, it rings very true when he says that today we live so cowed under the bombardment of this intellectual artillery that hardly anyone can attain to that inward detachment that is required for a clear view of the monstrous drama. Um, that really ought to be like right up at the front of our critique of bourgeois society is especially in the sort of age of, you know, the, the way in which sort of digital media and everything is integrated and that you're constantly available to everybody and your boss can text you and you can do your work from home through this app. And, you know, like I, I, you're just constantly overstimulated and that is a direct feature of the, uh, the function of, of the economy under capitalism. It should be like an eminent part of the critique rather than secondary or tertiary or even forgotten. Another, another bit of Spangler that I thought was interesting was where he said that Marxism is the capitalism of the working class. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Which, uh, and then Jacoby says that uh, you can't just dismiss Spangler's um, criticism of Marxism as being perverse because it's conservative it actually has a little bit of merit. And then later on in the book, I don't remember at which point, he talks about the logic of capitalism just being internalized. And there is an idea that the proletariat needs to just replace the bourgeoisie um, as the new bosses over the other proletarians, and that will somehow make everything equal. And it's, we just sort of dismiss our utopian horizon and uh, replace the bosses with, you know, workers so, that are the new bosses. Yeah. So on that note, really quick, Chris, there's a quote that I wanted to grab that I think sort of ties all this together. Quote, the unorthodox Marxists retrieved the substance of Marx. Socialism promised more than a rise in wages or an expansion of cities. A rise in wages, Marx wrote in Capital, only means in fact that the length and weight of the golden chain the wage laborer has already forged for himself allows it to be loosened somewhat. Neither the elevation nor the equalization of wages was the goal of Marx's socialism. Marx, early and late, denounced, quote, barracks communism. Liberation is more than electing the bosses, thereby trading subjugation for self-subjugation. So to me, I, I think that's sort of exactly kind of what we're hinting at and like trying to get yeah, to. Yeah, that says it better than what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, that... um. I, whenever, yeah, that barracks communism that I guess that that sort of language is raised a couple of different times. I think in Anti During, you know, they talk about um, trying to out Bismarck Bismarck mm -hmm. and making a, an, a, a, a sort of a barracks socialism. But I think if you're, you know, like for me, the, what that reminded me of was the there's a May 68 slogan that is sort of spray painted all over the city during the, the sort of. French near rev almost revolution in 68, which is that socialism without freedom is a barracks, which I think is actually uh, uh, a Bakunin quote. 
but it's this sort of this notion that goes all the way back to Marx and Engels that like they, I, I think it's actually very beautiful and poetic. Um, and, and again, it's a, to me, that's an example of this kind of warm current or this more humanist or whatever, more Hegelian or more Western Marxism that is inherent in Marx and Engels, even as they're also maybe sometimes scientistic. To me, it's, it's kind of always there. And it just sort of come up against it uh, over and over again. Well, on, on that note, let me pose a question to, to all of you, my lovely comrades. So in that quote, Jacobi says that Marx, the unorthodox Marxist retrieves the substance of Marx. So whenever we talk about this sort of utopianism, this sort of warm current, this kind of like revolutionary subjectivity, you know, I think probably all of us really resonate with this sort of like revolutionary pessimism. And I always talk about it uh, in terms of uh, actually a Slavoj Žižek quote where he describes it as the courage of hopelessness. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm curious, I mean, do you all see that kind of this is the substance of Marx and maybe in some way what we're, what we're all trying to do is to, is to retrieve that substance through this warm current precisely to give us some sort of way forward? Yes, I would say that that's exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah. God damn that. I was, yeah. yeah, no, uh, that very well yeah. put. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's why I think that um, the, uh, oh, now I'm blanking on his name. Uh, oh, Enzo Traverso, his sort of collection of essays about uh, left-wing melancholia is so um, so timely in in its being published so recently. Because it's just another one of these, um, these I think, should be much more popular texts about kind of in this project of salvaging the kind of I sort of idealist kernel in the rationalist shell of Marxism. I because I, I do think that whether or not we're all conscious of that as being our project, I think it should be for reasons I guess we've laid out already, which is that you can't just continue to ape something that hasn't yet worked, and especially when you're running out of time. Yeah. Which is what the counter is at like twelve years, eleven, twelve years now. Yeah, I think it, it gets shorter every time I read another article, though. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm cleaving onto my courage of hopelessness as much as I possibly can right now. Oh, no 